Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am covering in this audio Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 38. This is the story of where Jesus, at the Last Supper, warns his disciples, especially Peter, to not desert him after his crucifixion. Now, the parallel passages, there are the story is told in three other Gospels, Mark, Matthew, and John. Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 31, Matthew 26, 31 through 35, and John 13, 31 through 38. I've discussed the story of Jesus' warning against Peter to not deny him. I've discussed it thoroughly in Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 31, so I'm going to splice in that audio shortly. I will point out to you that in my discussion of Luke 22, 31 through 38, there's four verses of this passage that are not mentioned in the parallel passages, and so I haven't discussed it yet, and so I'm going to go back after the splice is over, and I'm going to discuss those last four verses in, in Luke 20, 22, namely verses 35, 6, 7, and 8. All right, so now the splice of Mark chapter 14, verse 27 through 31 starts now. Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 27. Now, the context of this, this is Thursday night. Nisan, first day of Passover, 14th of Nisan was Thursday. Friday evening, of course, went to the 15th of Nisan. Well, that's traditionally when the Jews ate the Lord's Supper that night. But it's still Thursday night. He is going to later on, after when the Lord's Supper breaks up, he's going to go to Gethsemane and get arrested, taken before Caiaphas, taken before Annas, taken before Herod, taken before Pilate, and finally crucified the next day, about midday. So that's where we are. We'll start in chapter 14, verses 27 through 31. I'll read that first out of Mark. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will run away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, Even if everyone runs away, I will certainly not. I assure you, Jesus said to him, Today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, If I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Now, first of all, let's take care of this little harmonization detail. Mark says that before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me the other three passages. Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John say before the rooster crows, period. So how do we reconcile that? Well, it's very simple. The NIV Study Bible says that some texts don't have twice in there, but there's no indication of that that I see in my Holman Christian Study Bible, and John Gill says there's no need to go to that in order to reconcile it. It's the simple fact that roosters crow, crow twice. Once on the third watch in the middle of the night, the Roman watch would be between 12 and 3 in the morning. Rooster crows then, then he crows at daybreak, and I don't doubt this because I used to think that roosters only crowed in the early morning, but I lived next to a particular rooster, and one night I was out on my porch in the middle of the night walking around couldn't sleep for some reason i was out there in the dead of morning and i heard the rooster over there just crowing away and when i was in china in rural places in the middle of the night when i'm trying to sleep i hear the roosters crowing away early morning hours so i I don't doubt this in the least so that's not as hard to reconcile as you might think so basically by the second rooster crows which is by dawn peter will have managed to deny jesus three times now as far as the parallel passages go, Matthew 26, 31 through 35 is almost exactly the same as Mark, and so we'll go through 
Matthew and discuss Matthew and Mark at the same time. Later, we'll have to pick up a few details in Luke and in John. Now, Luke, or John, I should say, John has a lot of stuff, and Luke does too. Luke has some stuff that goes on at the Last Supper that are unique to Luke and unique to John. And so I won't cover those things. I'll mention them, but I won't cover them. They will be covered when we go over Luke and John, when I do the audios and Luke and John. But just to set the scene here, before before we get to the story of Peter saying he would never deny Christ, let's see what Jesus said at this Last Supper. I'll just read it from John 13:31 through 38. When therefore he was gone out, that was Judas, and that was what the last thing we covered in the last audio, the last incident, Jesus had pointed out that Judas was, was a betrayer, and Judas hightailed it out of the Last Supper, went to the high priest to, to tell them where Jesus was, or was planning to be. Verse 31 in John 13, When therefore he was gone out, that's Judas, had gone out, Jesus saith, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And God shall glorify him in himself. That's talking about at the resurrection. And straightway shall he glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, where I go, you cannot come. So now I say unto you, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one to another. So you see some of the most popular and profound sayings of Jesus were said at this Last Supper. In fact, the foot washing of the disciples was at the Last Supper. The idea you serve is you serve your brother like slaves, and you love them, you wash your feet, you love one another. And at this point, we get the, the part of John that, that parallels Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Simon Peter says, says unto him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. Now, what he's saying is, Simon thought he was probably going off to some far geographical place. Well, actually, Jesus was talking about he was going to heaven, and, and Jesus is telling Peter, you can't go to heaven right now, but you'll follow afterwards. You'll see me in heaven. Of course, that's when Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. All right, so that's the background. Now, let's go through the passage about Jesus warning Peter, not that telling, predicting that Peter will deny him three times. Let's go through this closely. We'll go through the Matthew version, the same as Mark. My notes are in Matthew, so it's easier for me. Then Jesus said to them, Tonight all of you will run away because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. This is a quote from Zechariah 13:7. Jesus is always quoting the written scripture, for it is written, it is written, it is written, occurs over and over again in the Gospels. Zechariah 13:7 says this, Sword awake against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate. This is, the decla- this is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will also turn my hand against the little ones. The associate of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts is Yahweh, God the Father. His associate is Jesus. The shepherd is Jesus. He's going to be struck. The sheep, that's the disciples of Jesus, they're going to be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little one. That's the little ones are the disciples. And it doesn't mean that God is angry at the disciples. It just means he's in control of events, and the events are going to be such that they're going to be scattered. So it says, I will turn my hand against the little ones. So it wasn't just Peter that fell away. All of them fell away. In fact, we see this in verse 56 in Matthew 26 at the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested. Every last one of them, all of them, all 11 that were left, 
hightailed it out of the Garden of Gethsemane so they would not get arrested. Even though John did hang around for the crucifixion, the rest of them went into hiding. Jesus continues, both in Mark and in Matthew. He says, after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. That's Mark 14, verse 28, and Matthew 26, verse 32. Notice that he tells them that he's going to be resurrected. Now, the disciples had a real hard time with that over and over and over again. Starting at the end of his Galilean ministry, during his Perean ministry, he said, I'm going to be resurrected. But they didn't believe it. it was, that was off their radar scope. They couldn't understand that. They did understand it, though, after they saw him the Sunday after the resurrection. Jesus told the disciples here to meet him in Galilee after the, res- the resurrection. And after he rose, he met the women in after the resurrection, and he told the women to tell the disciples to go meet him in Galilee. And also an angel who met the women after the resurrection told, him, told the women, go tell the disciples, meet Jesus in Galilee. So they had plenty of instruction. Jesus was thinking ahead, planning ahead how to start his kingdom after his death and resurrection. We see this in Matthew 28:16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee. They did exactly what Jesus had said, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. We don't know the mountain, but it was some particular mountain that God, Jesus had said. Matthew 28:10, we see Jesus telling the women after the resurrection, Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. And then the angel in Matthew 28:5 through 7 But the angel told the women, Don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been resurrected, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. So there we have it. Now, the fact that he had told them he was going to be resurrected, that must have cheered them up. You would think it cheered them up a little bit. He just told them that he was going to be struck down and the sheep scattered. That was probably pretty depressing. But deep down, did they really believe that he was going to be resurrected? I don't think so. I think it was too hard for them. It was only after they started hearing those resurrection appearances from the from the women, from the disciples on the road to Emmaus. That's when they started getting cheered up. And I bet they were extraordinarily cheered up. Peter says in Mark 14, verse 29, Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, that's King James, Homer Christian Study Bible has runs away. Another version, I forgot which version, had stumbled. Although all shall be offended, run away and stumble, I will never run away. Famous last words. Peter did exactly that. Peter, of course, is noted for his impetuosity. He jumped out of the boat to walk to Jesus on the water. So Peter, was he had a slow fuse. He was ready to, to launch. But he fizzled out pretty quick. He started sinking on the water. He ran away when Jesus got arrested and then denied him three times when Jesus was under trial. Remember at Caesarea Philippi, he said, No, Jesus, never shall you go down to Jerusalem to be killed. And Jesus had to tell him, Get behind me, Satan. Clark says Peter is, quote, vainly confident. And and Clark gave a sort of a gratuitous slam at our Catholic brother. And he said, Strange, it's strange that the Church of Rome would be built, would build their church upon such a rock. Well, to be fair to Peter, now remember this is before Pentecost, and I'm sure the Catholics would respond that way. Proverbs 28:26 says this, The one who trusts in himself is a fool, but one who walks in wisdom will be safe. Well, Peter was trusting in himself, and he made himself look out pretty foolish. Jesus rebukes him and says in the next verse, I assure you, Jesus said to him, Tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three 
times. Now, notice that when Jesus says tonight, he, what he's saying is your proud confidence in me is not going to last 24 hours. It's not even going to last through the night. But this is Thursday night, and before the sun comes up Friday morning, you're going to deny me three times. All your proud protestations of loyalty don't mean too much. But this is what how Peter responds in verse 32 in Mark 14. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. Famous last words. That's exactly what he did. All the disciples said the same thing. Now, you notice the disciples are joining in with Peter on this. Peter gets most of the blame because he stuck his neck out the most. But the other disciples were saying the same thing. Now, in my opinion, the disciples were just as foolishly cocky as Peter was. However, to their credit, John Gill points out, they were expressing abhorrence at the thought of Jesus dying. They were ignorant of their own weakness, I guess just like Peter was. They probably wanted Jesus to know they had nothing to do with Judas's betrayal plot. That's an idea I had. They wanted to say, no, 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 I have nothing to do with what Judas, Judas did. And they at least wanted Jesus to know they had as much love as Peter had. Remember, these disciples loved Jesus. I mean, how could you help but love Jesus? He's the most lovable human being in the history of the planet because he was perfect. He was God. Now, Peter knew that Jesus was in mortal danger. It had to be clear to him. But he was willing to die at that point, but his courage failed him. When push came to shove, same thing with the disciples. They all scattered, verse 56, at the Garden of Gethsemane. They all scattered, despite the fact that they were protesting their loyalty. Now let's go to Luke chapter 22, and we'll drop down to verse 31 and pick up the part of the same story. It's a little bit different, so we'll get some more details. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Well, here Jesus is assuring, he's already told Peter the bad news. You're going to deny me three times, but then he gives him some good news. You're going to come back. When you've turned back, you're going to be strong enough to strengthen your brothers. And I have prayed for you that your faith not fail. Now, why would Satan asked to sift Peter particularly, probably because Peter is the head apostle. He was the one that was a leader of the apostles. He was the most prominent. And, of course, that's what the devil loves to go after. You take a leader down, you take down their whole, all their followers automatically. That's just warfare strategy, and the devil is he's fighting a war against Jesus. Now, it's interesting to me that the devil would go to Jesus to ask him anything. It just amazes me, but as Jesus said, Satan has asked... I'm sure Jesus said, no, I don't think so, Satan. Get out of here. You're not going to sift Peter. Peter's going to do just fine. And he did. After the Holy Spirit fell, he was one of the most courageous people you'll ever want to know, and he ended up being crucified upside down in Rome after spreading the gospel for the rest of his adult life. Let's look at what John Gill says about what Peter did after the, after um, not after Pentecost, actually, but after uh, Jesus had resurrected. Quote, Whereas all the disciples forsook Christ and fled, some way, some one way and some another, Peter, after his recovery, got them together again and returned with them to Jerusalem. When they with him assembled together till the third day Christ was risen, he, he, Peter, strengthened there the disciples' faith in the Messiah and put them upon filling up the place of Judas by choosing another apostle. That's when he got them together in Acts chapter 1, and they chose Matthias to take the place of Joseph, also known as Persabbath, also known as Justice. Peter was in charge of all that, 
and on the day of Pentecost preached the most excellent sermon. And before Pentecost, even uh, the, the week after Jesus died, the Sunday after he died, he got them together all in a house there. He gathered them together to receive news from the women. Mary Magdalene, especially, I think at first, came and said, hey, he's risen, he's risen. And then, of course, when we get to Pentecost, he preached the most excellent sermon, the famous Peter's Pentecostal sermon. Was that Acts chapter 2 or 3, somewhere around there? which as it was made useful for the conversion of 3,000 sinners, not bad, was doubtless a means of confirming the minds of the disciples, and he has left two exceeding useful epistles, that's First Peter and Second Peter, for the strengthening of his brethren in, in all ages of time. So what Jesus said exactly came to true, true. Peter strengthened his brothers. Now, Jesus here calls him Simon. Simon, Simon, look out. Why did he call him Peter? Well, Peter means rock, and Peter's not exactly acting like a rock at this time, so it's probably not... The best time to use that honorific title with Peter. And also Simon was his given name. Which, And when you use somebody's given name, the name his mama gave him from childhood, it's more intimate. Jesus loved Peter. We've got to always remember that. He was, he was predicting a very terrible failing of Peter, but he never stopped loving him through the whole, whole sorry incident. What does it mean to sift? The devil wanted to sift Peter like wheat. Well, it probably means to toss Peter to and fro like wheat in a sieve, to afflict and distress him. Gil has another option. It could mean cover Peter as you as you cover wheat with chaff when you when you shake when you sift wheat. Of course, you throw it up in the air and the wind blows the chaff, and then the chaff lies lies. If the wind doesn't blow it away, actually, it it falls on the wheat, and the chaff stands for sin and corruption. I don't think that's what it is, because most of the time the chaff gets blown off the wheat. It just means being tossed to and fro just like you have wheat in a, in a wheat sieve that you're throwing up in the air to, to, to get the chaff out of it. When did Jesus pray for Peter? One, someone has suggested the high priestly prayer, John 17, 9. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they're yours. That's just a speculation. Who knows? What's the application here? Peter stumbled, but did his stumbling and did his sin? Was that the final story? No. Peter had a story to tell after his repentance. I just told you all the good things he did. Got the apostles together, chose a substitute for Judas, got them together at Pentecost, preached the Pentecostal sermon, got 3,000 people saved, became one of the leading pillars of the Church of Jerusalem. I didn't mention that. Was one of the first to preach the gospel to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house. I didn't mention that either. And he wrote two epistles for the edification of the church, First and Second Peter. So just because you stumble and fail the Lord, that doesn't mean you cannot be mightily used afterwards. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of people who stumble and fail the Lord and who walk out on him and turn their back on him. And I never have understood how a Christian can look at what Jesus did for them on the cross, save them from their sins, and then say, well, I think I'll do it my way. I just heard a story of a young man that grew up in church with me, and now he's married, got a little kid. His wife is interested in missions. His father-in-law was a missionary. And he's decided that he wants to follow the facts where they may, and he can no longer call himself a Christian, and he wants to be objective. Well, I guess what he'll do is he'll go look at the Bhagavad Gita and see what's in there. Maybe he'll read some Nietzsche, some other the wonderful, stupid, idiotic philosophies of this world. And I've read a lot of them. I like philosophy. I like to read it because I realize how stupid people are and how they cannot un know who the truth without Jesus. But anyway... There's still hope even for this guy if they repent and if they follow Jesus and strengthen their brothers. Luke 22, verse 33 through 34. Lord, he, Peter, told him, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Famous last words. 
I tell you, Peter, he, Jesus said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. So Jesus, prophetic, he's God, remember, he, he's prophet. He knew that Peter was not going to last the night. All right, so that's the end of that incident of Peter's, the prediction of Peter's three-time denial. And now we're going to take up the institution of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. The first thing we need to say about the institution of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is the timing of it. Robertson has a note that Luke has it in a different time order than Mark does, but he thinks that it's best to do the way Mark does it, which is after the departure of, of Judas, and so I will assume that Judas has left. It makes more sense. That I can't think of Judas sitting there eating the Lord's Supper with the disciples. It's, it's offensive, somehow offensive to me to even think about that. So we're going to assume that. I'll read starting in verse 22 of Mark 14, going through verse 26. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and so they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many. I assure you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in a new way in the kingdom of God. After singing psalms, he went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, before I get into this, let me say that thousands of books have been written about the Lord's Supper, especially about transubstantiation, consubstantiation, John Calvin's spiritual real presence view, and Zwingli's alleged memorial view. Let me just say I believe that I believe Calvin was right, that the Holy Spirit was there at the meal as people ate, but I don't believe all this hocus-pocus about the bread and the wine changing, the accidents of the blood and the wine disappearing, but the substance changing. Excuse me, the accidents remaining, but the substance changing and all that stuff. I think that's that's was invented by philosophers with too much time on their hands and also invented by a church structure, namely the Catholic structure that wanted to keep all power in the hierarchy, in the priestly hierarchy, and what better way to do that than say, we have the power to say hocus-pocus, in hoc verbis, or whatever the words of institution are in Latin, ring the bell, and we've got the power to turn that bread and wine into into the body and blood of Jesus to give you your salvation. I am a low church guy. I don't believe in that nonsense. So I'm going to assume that Calvin was right. I don't believe it's just a memorial. I believe the Holy Spirit, Spirit Jesus, actually, in the by through means of his Holy Spirit, actually visits Christians as we eat the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm going to mention a few things that are a little bit off the mainstream to get your minds thinking a little bit about the Lord's Supper. I've done a lot of teaching on this. I've got a video on it. In fact, it's in my house church playlist on YouTube, Pretty Good Bible Studies, YouTube. Look on the house church, Lord's Supper. And I've got all kind of stuff, PowerPoints and such. But I, And I'm not going to go through it all, but I'm going to mention some of it as we go through. The first thing I want to mention is something that I have come up with on my own. I do not like creative theology any more than I like creative accounting because it can end you up in jail or in trouble. But... The kingdom of God, Jesus says, I will drink it in a new way in the kingdom of God, in a new way. What does that mean, in a new way in the kingdom of God? I have, when, when does the kingdom of God come? Well, we know the kingdom of God is already not yet. It was established at Pentecost. So the church is here, the kingdom of God. So Jesus doesn't drink the Lord's Supper with us when we eat. I just finished saying that I believe that Calvin was right, that he came with us, and I believe that he's talking He's talking metaphorically. He doesn't literally drink wine, but he's with us there in the Lord's Supper as we eat. And if you say that that's too much spiritualization for your literalist mindset, I'll point out to you that God on the Mount on Mount Sinai, when the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments were given, and, Joseph, and uh, Moses had 
uh, Moses had Joshua up there and the elders and so forth, and they ate a meal. It said God ate a meal with Moses. Well, God didn't eat a meal because God doesn't have a mouth. He's a spiritual being, but he was there. So I think this is sort of a reference to that, and I think that Jesus is there with us now in the kingdom of God. In other words, I think that the typical futurist orientation of the Lord's Supper when people say we're going to sit down and eat with Jesus at the end is doesn't give short shrift to the fact that the kingdom is now for one thing another thing it bothers me is how in the world is Jesus going to sit down with several billion people and eat the Lord's Supper all at the same time and Jesus has a body he's in heaven now with a body and we're going to have bodies and we're going to sit down a billion people and eat the Lord's Supper with him I don't think so but anyway that's my contribution I'll let you think about that now a few details that we get from Matthew and Luke. First of all, in Luke, it says he he gave thanks over the meal. And Matthew and Mark, it says he blessed. The Greek word never says you bless the food, bless the bread. It just says bless. The King James, in fact, has it correctly translated. It just says when he had blessed. No object. You either bless God or you are blessed. If you bless God, that means you're giving thanks to him. You're praising him. But you don't bless bread. That's a priestly sacerdotal type idea you don't do that you just bless god you give thanks to him it's a different greek word actually here in luke where he says he had given thanks he gave thanks before the meal and if you want some precedence for when you pray over your reg- before your regular meals this is a good one i mean the jews did it jesus did it before the lord's supper so why can't we do it before our meals let me read what it says in Luke 22. This is the passage that most people read when they administer the Lord's Supper in churches today because it's, it's fuller. Verse 17 in Luke 22, And he received a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. It is for I say unto you, I will not drink from henceforth of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, and so forth. Do it in remembrance of me. Now, in Luke, there's two cups mentioned. Now, the Jewish Passover had four cups, and they all have names. I looked on the websites to get the names of these four cups that the Jews had, and it was all kinds of different names, so I guess it's not standard. But they were, And most people, from what I read, said the third cup is... Luke mentions two cups, and the, the second cup that he mentions was the third cup of the Passover meal. We only have one cup today. And by the way, this is the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper... There's some parallels, but there's some differences, too. So we don't want to get slavishly tied down to what they did in the Jewish Lord's Supper, in the Jewish Passover meal and say that we need to do that in the Lord's Supper. That's not going to fly. We can't do that. One other comment here. John, excuse me, the other pa- parallel passage, it's actually not a gospel. It's, it's not John. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. And Paul is talking about what he received from Jesus about how to do the Lord's Supper. He says that this Lord's Supper should be done in remembrance of me, the breaking of the body, the bread for the body and the drinking of the wine in remembrance of me. Now, this is an interesting thing. I had a friend of mine. Well, there was a guy that got a master's degree from my seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, now known as Trinity Seminary. He wrote a book on the Lord's Supper. He's, he's Dr. Eric Vinson, and I got a copy of that book, and I read it, and I was convinced by it. And I had a friend of mine who was also a friend with Dr. Svensson who bought into this and would explain at conferences, house church, I did 14 annual house church conferences, and at every one of these conferences, not to mention numerous seminars, my friend would go through the Greek here and say, the Greek does not really mean do this in remembrance for me. It's better translated as do this as a reminder to me. And 
I didn't know Greek at the time, and so it kind of went over my head, and I thought, well, yeah, you could translate it either way. It must be because all the versions translate it this way. But I've been learning some Greek, and, and just the other day I ran through the Greek of this passage. There's two pronouns. Uh, one is mu, which which is the genitive of a personal pronoun, uh, the personal pronoun, first-person personal pronoun, and it could mean do this in remembrance of me, the genitive there, of me, or it could me, mean do this as a reminder, do this as my reminder. Of me can be my, and remembrance can be translated as reminder, because a remembrance is bringing something of the past back to your memory, back to your mind, and a reminder is to bring to your mind something that's going to happen in the future. The word is ambiguous. It could be either way. And I thought, well, okay, there's another personal pronoun, that pronoun is emos, that uh, the other personal pronoun, which is used here, and that cannot mean of me, it has to be my. That's the way you translate that, my. So it really ought to be do this as my reminder. Well, now, that's some interesting theological stuff there. And then my friend goes on to say that all the other covenants, this is the new covenant, right? But all the other covenants have a reminder, have a sign for reminder. For example, Abraham was circumcised. That was a reminder to God to be faithful to the covenant people. The Mosaic covenant had a reminder. That was the Sabbath day that reminds God to keep the covenant with Israel. And then Noah's covenant had a reminder. That was the rainbow, never to destroy the world again by water. All of them have reminders. And this is the new covenant. What's the reminder that God's going to come back and eat it with us and not leave these disciples alone, but is going to come back and eat the, eat the meal with them? What's the reminder? The real the reminder is, well, there's two reminders, the bread and the wine. That makes a lot of sense. All right, some other theological stuff that I want to mention that cuts a, across the grain of American, ecclesi- American church ecclesiology the way it's done, American church tradition, and I think it's done basically wrong in about 99.9% of churches in America. This is what I call the five or the six F's of the agape feast, the agape love feast as it's called in Jude, five F's of the Lord's Supper. Number one, the first F's, it was a feast. The word is dapnon, supper. A supper is a full meal, it's not a sip and a chip. The agape love feast do you just eat, drink a little bit of wine, a little bit of bread at a feast? Of course not. The first century church ate a full meal, and that was the full meal was the Lord's Supper. It incorporated the blood and the wine. It was not just the blood and the wine. It was a full meal with the blood and the wine. Excuse me, I meant to say the bread and the wine. That's a radical idea. How about the frequency? The second half, the frequency. They did it every week. That can be proved from the scripture. I won't do it here. Third, what's the main point? Introspection, looking at yourself to see if you've committed any sins. You know, Paul was worried about a particular church sinning when they did the Lord's Supper. They ate before the poor people got there, and they got drunk, and they feasted, had a good time. That's another point. How do you get how do you get drunk on a little shot glass of grape juice or shot glass of wine even? You don't. They were eating a full meal, but they. what was the point? They were sinning, and, and Paul said, you're not discerning the body. In other words, you're ignoring the body of Christ. You're ignoring the poor people who have to work all day and can't get to the meal quick like you rich people do when you, and you're eating all your food quickly. I believe that's what was going on there. So that they, they needed to do some introspection about sin, but, but the average Lord's Supper was a feast because it's called the agape love feast. A feast is a happy time. We should be, we should be glorious and having a good time. Not sitting there in deathly funereal science, silence with our heads bowed in contrition. 
Now, of course, if somebody needs to confess their sin, there's nothing wrong with confessing your sin, but don't turn the feast into a funeral. Is there a future orientation or a past orientation? That's the next F. Future for orientation or a past orientation? Well, I just finished saying the reminders of me. Remembers of me sounds like it's past, but as do it as my reminder. Sounds like the future. And also, how about when it says when you're going to, I'm going to drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. I will drink it new in the kingdom of God. That's in the future. That's not in the past. How about when he says, proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, till he comes. That's future-oriented, not past. So that's another way that people, I think, have misunderstood the Lord's Supper. And as far as fellowship, another F. I've lost track of the Fs, but fellowship. 1 Corinthians 10:17. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. Which way does the causation run? Does it run from having one loaf that causes unity, or is it, does it run from we are one body, therefore we have one loaf? If you will read that verse again, and I had to read it about a hundred times because I was so entrenched in my traditional way of looking at it, the verse runs this way, because there is one loaf, we are many are one body. Eating the Lord's Supper creates unity, folks. Fellowship, communion, koinonia, that's what the word communion, it comes from the Greek word koinonia, so does fellowship. That comes from the Greek word koinonia, a different translation of the same Greek word. Since I lost track of the five F's that I was going to tell you about, let me summarize them real quick. The first F, the Lord's Supper was a full meal. It was not a soda cracker and a shot glass of wine. It was not a sip and a chip. Second F, the purpose of the Lord's Supper was fellowship, unity, koinonia. Third F, the atmosphere was festive. It was the agape love feast. It's festive. The atmosphere was not funereal. Fourth F, the frequency was once a week. The fifth F, the orientation was primarily future and not past. All right, with those remarks behind us, let's go through a few details and I'll shut this discussion down on the Lord's Supper and I'll just make a few comments. Again, I say I, you could go on forever about the Lord's Supper. Here's, a, here's something the King James has always led me to, uh, has misled me in Matthew when. Jesus says, drink ye all of it, and he gave thanks and gave to them, saying, drink ye all of it. I thought it meant drink all the wine. That's not what it is. It means all of you guys, all of you people, all of y'all, drink it. The Holman Christian Study Bible has drink from it, all of you, which is what it means. It doesn't mean drink all the wine. Of course they're supposed to drink the wine. I, don't, I think that would have been superfluous to say that. Also, we need to notice that the phrase new covenant is only in Luke so this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So when you're drinking that wine and eating that bread, you're talking, you're, you're, that's the sign of the new covenant. And if you're a new covenant theology person, which I am, that's extremely important. Because that's, our, our covenant now is based on Jesus, not on Moses. And, and, and obviously the new covenant is the new covenant. It's the new testament, the new covenant. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so forth. It's not the old covenant, the old Mosaic law passed away as, as in the book of Hebrews. The blood of Christ is shed for the forgiveness of sins. There's so much, many verses on that, especially if you look in the Old Testament, that we all know that. I'm not going to mention any verses about that. He shed his blood for our sins. Here's another point I actually left out, uh, talking about eating and drinking in the kingdom in a new way. Mark has it, in a new way. I will drink it new. I will drink it new. Matthew and Mark both have it. In the kingdom of God and my Father's kingdom, let me give you what John Gill says. He says, no, that's the future kingdom. The kingdom of the Son had already come. The kingdom of the Father is not till the consummation of time. And I believe that is a misconception. That's not 
I don't think you can make a distinction like that. Look in Luke chapter 22, verse 30, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, the Son's kingdom, not God's kingdom, the Father's kingdom. There's no distinction there. Jesus said, in my kingdom. You will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. When when are the apostles going to eat and drink at his table in my kingdom? In my opinion, it's right after Pentecost, after the church got established, they would. And to show you that I'm not totally nuts about saying that Jesus is not going to literally eat a meal with us at the Lord's Supper, let me give you a quote from John Gill, who has got gravitas, who's not a crackpot. Quote, Christ will drink new wine, not literally, but spiritually understood, and which designs the joys and glories of heaven, the best wine which is reserved to the last, which is sometimes signified by a feast, of which wine is a principal part, by, setting, by sitting down as at a table in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and expressed by wine because of its refreshing and exhilarating nature in God's presence as fullness of joy. So you see, John Gill doesn't take it literally either. Here's another quote from Gill. The Jews often express the joys of the world to come by such like figurative phrases. They make mention of, quote, the wine of the world to come and of, quote, a spiritual drink, unquote, in the last days, which is called the world to come. Well, you know, the last days, that's after the Jewish age and the Messianic age. That's where you and I are right now. So I believe Jesus is eating that meal with us right now, spiritually drinking the wine and spiritually eating the food when he's there. That's why... You know, it should be a joyous time, but it should not be a frivolous time. A spiritual drink, continues Gill, in the last days, which is called the world to come. And so they, the Jews, explain after this manner, Isaiah 64, 4, neither has the eye seen, O God, quote, this is the wine, unquote, which is kept in the grapes from the six days of the creation of which they often speak in their writings. Well, John Gill's the Jewish rabbinic expert, and he says, oh, the Jews often talked about the, drinking the wine in the Father's kingdom in a spiritual manner. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. The wine of the kingdom, the spiritual enjoyments at the right hand of God, will be infinitely more precious and useful. From what our Lord says here, we learn that the sacrament of his supper is a type and a pledge to genuine Christians of the felicity they shall enjoy with Christ in the kingdom of glory. Well, if that kingdom of glory is, comes at Pentecost and not at the second coming, well, then that means that we, when we eat the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating actually the antitype, not the type. This in a new way, Adam Clark says, when Jesus says, I will drink it with you in a new way, I will drink it with you new. He says that in Matthew and Mark. Adam Clark says this, that is, quote, that is, I shall no more drink of the produce of the vine with you, but shall drink new wine, wine of a widely different nature from this, a wine which the kingdom of God alone can afford. The term new in scripture, scripture is often taken in this sense. So the new heaven, the new earth, the new covenant, the new man, mean a heaven-earth covenant man of a very different nature from the former. It was our Lord's invariable custom to illustrate heavenly things by those of earth and to make that which has last been the subject of conversation the means of doing it. Thus he uses wine here, of which they had lately drunk, and on which he had held the preceding discourse, to point out the supreme blessedness of the kingdom of God. So, I think that's some pretty good evidence that this Lord's Supper is a type a picture, a sign of the new covenant, and we're in the new covenant now, so when we eat the Lord's Supper, we're eating and drinking with Jesus, folks. And it should be a full meal. A full meal. That means meat, potatoes, pork chops, barbecue chicken, whatever, chicken chow mein, whatever it is that you eat, along with bread and wine. And by the way, there's a, I've noticed a lot of people start using white grape juice and white wine for the Lord's Supper. Uh-uh, folks. 
we should keep the symbolism as close as we can. That's why we have symbols. Symbols point us to spiritual realities, and Jesus' blood was not white. It was red. So if you got it, I mean, I realize if you don't have it, you can't use it. Hard cases make bad law. But if you got a choice between red wine and white wine, I personally think white wine tastes better. I never drink red wine when I can get white wine. But for the communion, it ought to be red wine to symbolize his blood. That's a minor point. I'll shut down this audio right here. I hope you enjoyed it. All right, I have now returned from my splice discussing Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 31, covering Jesus' warning to Peter and the rest of the disciples not to desert him. Now, in our passage that we're covering in this audio, Luke 22, 31 through 38, I've only managed to get through the first several verses, 31, 32, 33, 34. I've still got 35, 36, 37, 38 to go through. And so I'm going to discuss that now. Starting with Luke chapter 22, verse 35, we read this. He, Jesus, also said to them, his disciples at the Last Supper, When I sent you out without money bag, traveling bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then he said to them, But now whoever has a money bag should take it, and also a traveling bag, and whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. Now what Jesus is doing here is giving them exactly the opposite instructions that he gave them when he sent the disciples out on their two missions, the sending out of the 12 in Luke 9.3 and the sending out of the 70 in Luke 10.4. And let's look at that more in detail. Luke 9.3, Jesus said, Take nothing for the road. He, take, he told them no walking stick, no traveling bag. But here in Luke 22, verse 36, he says, Take a traveling bag. And then in Luke 9, when he sent out the 12, he said, Take no money. But here in Luke 22, verse 35, he said, take a money bag, which of course would have money in it. In Luke 10, 4, when he sent out the seven, he says, don't carry a money bag. But here in Luke 25, he says, take a money bag. In Luke 10, 4, when he sent out the seven, he said, don't take a traveling bag. In Luke 22, verse 35, here at the Last Supper, he says, take a traveling bag. So you see, the instructions are totally different. Why? Why would he do that? Well, as the NIV Study Bible says, is that when Jesus sent out the 12 and the 70, Jesus was at the height of his popularity. He had not been crucified yet. He had been healing all those people. He was very popular, and it wasn't dangerous for the apostles to go around traveling and finding hospitality as they went. And preparing for such a long trip without buying all that stuff would slow him down. He was in a hurry. But now they're in it for the long haul, and now there's going to be a lot of persecution. After all, didn't Jesus warn them of the persecution that was going to come from the unbelieving Jewish leaders? Matthew 23, verse 34, the Olivet, before the Olivet Discourse. He said, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. He's speaking to the Pharisees here. And the prophets and the wise men and the scribes that he's talking about going out to spread are, the, are his apostles and their workers who are going out to spread the gospel. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Well, in that kind of environment, you got to go with the money bag, and later you got to carry a sword. You have to, because things are not as friendly as they used to be. Now let's talk about the controversial item that Jesus told them to carry, which was swords. He said, whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. In other words, it's important enough for you to have a sword that you sell your robe. It's more important that you have a sword than it is for you to have clothing. And why was that? Because people are going to come after them. Robbers, your typical ordinary run-of-the-mill robbers, not to mention emissaries from the temple in Jerusalem. 
were going to come after them, so they needed self-defense. Well, you would think that's easy enough. Verse 38, the, the disciples respond and say, Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. Enough of that, he told them. Now, verse 38 is given rise to some controversy, especially because of pacifists, Christian pacifists, who say that it's wrong always for any Christian to exert violence, exercise violence upon someone who's trying to take your head off or trying to rob you or trying to rape your wife or whatever. So let's look at that. I'm going to give you five possible arguments why Jesus didn't mean what he said when he said, I want you to buy a sword. Here's the first argument. When Jesus said, enough of that, this shows that the disciples were taking Jesus too literally. In other words, this is the NIV Study Bible. The argument goes like this. Jesus didn't really mean for them to buy swords. He just meant it was a proverbial expression to take a sword. It just means look out for yourself, defend yourself. To which I say, so what? Whether it was a sword or a knife or a hand grenade or a machine gun or whatever, or whether it was their fist because they learned some kind of Chinese martial art, what difference does it make? You're still exercising violence and perpetrating violence on an attacker. And if I understand pacifism right, because of their erroneous interpretation of Jesus' saying, turn the other cheek, we're not supposed to do that. Well, I think that's not going to work. Because Jesus said, carry two swords. Whether he was speaking literally or metaphorically, I don't really care. He was saying, you need to defend yourself. All right, so the two-sword two sword admonition is said to be metaphorical. That's the first offense, and I just said that's not a very good defense. Here's another one. G Peter was rebuked for using a sword. This was in the garden. Remember when the temple police came out to arrest Jesus? Peter got hot about it. Verse, Luke 22, verses 50 through 51. Then one of them struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, but Jesus responded, No more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. Well, the answer to that is Peter, yes, Peter was rebuked for using a sword, but he was not rebuked for using a sword absolutely in all circumstances. He was rebuked for using a sword at the wrong time. It would have been suicide for him to fight the arresting officers in Gethsemane. All of the disciples and Jesus would have been slaughtered on the spot. And even if you postulate that Peter might perhaps have been successful, then he would have screwed up God's plan of redemption for Jesus dying on the cross. It would have been short-circuited. So that's not a good argument against a in favor of a pacifist interpretation of Luke 22, the two-sword verse. No. The third pacifist argument, this is from Adam Clark, who I don't know if he's a pacifist, but this is an argument that could be used. He says the Greek text can be interpreted differently than two swords. The by there could refer to the traveling bag in the previous verse, so then the word by would not be taken in connection with a sword. So we would read the verse like this. Whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy a traveling bag. Well, then the question arises, well, what does having a sword or not having a sword have to do with buying a traveling bag? I mean, really, that is a dumb argument, unless I don't misunderstand Clark. I mean, Clark's a smart guy, and I don't want to belittle him or anything, but that doesn't make a bit of sense to me. He, why would The word sword is right there in the text. So if buy doesn't refer to sword, then why is sword there in the text? What's it there for? Jesus meant for them to buy a sword if they didn't have one. That's just plain, straightforward reading of the text. So that's the third pro-pacifist argument. Let's look at the fourth one. Adam Clark says, buy two swords was a proverbial expression. It, its meaning was to be ready for defense, and it's not to be taken literally. Okay, I've already mentioned this. If it's not to be taken literally, 
if you're supposed to just be ready for defense in a general sense, well, then how are you going to be ready for a defense against attackers? You've got to have something. Numchucks, something, a whip. you got to have something, a pistol. you got to have something to perpetrate violence on your attackers if you're going to do self-defense. But as far as I understand it, pacifists think it's wrong for, for believers to whack non-believers. Here's the fifth pro-pacifist argument. Machiron, which is the accusative of the word for sword in Greek, that word should be translated as knife, and the knife would then be used for providing forage and fuel. Well, let me tell you something. You can non-pacifistically kill someone with a knife as well as a sword. So even if you translate it as knife, that doesn't mean that the, the knife is going to be used for forage and fuel. And no, that's just an assumption. I remember asking one time, I was at a conference, a conference I helped put on, and there was a pacifist Christian sitting across from me eating, and he was going on about his pacifism. He's a real, most pacifists are a very nice guy. They actually, their personalities are very pacifistic, if you will. So he's going on and on and on about how it's sinful for Christians to protect themselves. And so I asked him the obvious question of what happens if you're in your house, robber breaks in, got a gun at your wife's throat, and says, you don't hand over your money, I'm going to rape your wife. In fact, I'm going to do it anyway. And then after I rape her, I'm going to kill her. And that's not a, a real hard hypothetical. That sort of stuff happens all the time in the United States of America. In fact, all over the world. And so the pacifist looked at me and said, you know, people ask me that all the time. And I thought to myself, of course they ask you that all the time. That's the most logical question to ask you in that circumstance. And so I waited with bated breath to hear what his answer was going to be. This was his answer. He says, I honestly don't know what I would do. And I thought, well... Reality impinged upon his ideological theology, which makes no sense at all. Pacifism is the dumbest. And the thing, it's, it's not only unscriptural, it's so impractical that nobody can live by it. Well then, let me summarize my view of this two-sword verse. When Jesus said, enough of that, he was rebuking the rash use of the swords. The idea that the disciples would pull out the swords right then and defend him against crucifixion, he was not rebuking them for the use of the swords for self-defense. To fight now would be suicide, Jesus is telling them. Why would he bring up the idea of bringing a sword if he meant for them never to buy a sword? I think the disciples just got carried away and misinterpreted his, wor his words, and that's why he said, enough. Now we need to point out also that the sword was never meant to be used offensively to spread the gospel. I should hope that goes without saying. Now remember, I know in the medieval Catholic Church, unfortunate events happened like when the Frank King Clovis, Clovis I, Frankish king in France, in Gaul, and he just baptized everybody by standing up on the beach and says, you get baptized and believe in Jesus or I'm going to kill you all with a sword. Well, that's nonsense. So... Two extremes here. One extreme nobody really holds to anymore, that you convert people with a sword. But the other extreme is there's a lot of pacifists who say you can't use legitimate self-defense with a sword. And I think that is a counsel of perfection. It is advice for the millennium, except I don't believe in the earthly millennium. It's advice for the final state, for where we're going to be living when the world is created anew with no sin and no robbers and no bad people. And no jihadist, no robbers. Now, let me give you a quote from Adam Clark. I must here confess that the matter about the swords appears to me very obscure. I'm afraid I do not understand it. And I know of none who does. So Adam Clark doesn't understand, know anybody who understands that verse. Well, I just explained it in a very straightforward manner. And I think Adam Clark is being just a little bit pessimistic here. I don't really understand what the problem is. The, the solution to this verse is very simple. 
You don't use a sword to go out and spread the gospel with, but you don't leave your disciples defenseless when they're attacked either. You know, if you can't practice what you preach, and this is what I say to pacifists, you're going to stand there and watch your wife, wife get raped and killed and you got a gun and you could stop it? Well, then you're not a very nice person. I don't mean to put, make it personal, but I mean, that's just the way it is. All right, let's go back to our passage here in Luke chapter 22. We finished with the preparation of, for the journey and the buying a sword as well as a money bag and, and so forth. He says in verse 37, For I tell you, for I, Jesus, tell you, disciples, what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the outlaws. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Now that is referring to a verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. This is God speaking. I will give him, Jesus, as many as a portion. And he will receive the mightiest spoil. That's talking about all the Christians that go that will belong to Jesus when he establishes his kingdom. Why will I do that? Why will I, Yahweh, do that? Because he, Jesus, submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. And what that means was is he was in between two transgressors, two robbers, two rebels, when he was crucified on the cross. Isaiah continues, yet he, Jesus, bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Remember, he said to the thief, this day you will be with me in paradise, not in a holding tank, not in Hades, but in paradise in heaven. And so Jesus predicts that this is what's going to happen before it happens. And again, I think he's doing this to encourage his disciples so they, they have the horrible shock of seeing their Messiah crucified on a cross as a criminal. They can remember, hey, that's what Isaiah prophesied. He's, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy even in his death. Because, you know, that must have been a horrible shock to see Jesus killed like that. They just couldn't handle it. The disciples were told over and over again it was going to happen, but they just didn't psychologically accept the fact. So Jesus is doing everything he can to help them get over the shock of him dying during those three horrible days when they don't know that Jesus is resurrected from the dead yet. Jesus said in, in our verse here, he said, he said that, what is written about me, that he was going to be counted among the robbers, is coming to its fulfillment. In other words, in a very few short hours, I'm going to be crucified amongst the robbers. Remember, this is Thursday night, say 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night, whatever. He's got to go to Gethsemane in the middle of the night, in the early morning hours, get arrested. Then he's going to get tried before Annas and then Caiaphas in the very, very early morning. He's taken to Pontius Pilate Friday morning, and then he's crucified in the afternoon, Friday afternoon. So it was coming, and he predicted it right there. All right, we're finished with Luke chapter 22 verses 31 through 38 in our next audio in Luke chapter 22 covering verses 17 through 20 we will look at the institution of the Lord's Supper I hope you stay tuned for that audio and I hope you enjoyed this one